Cool. Do you want to hear a joke that I came up with right before we started recording? <laughs> sure. I'm already laughing and I don't even know what it is. Okay. If you were an instrument, what instrument would you be? Like, wait, is there a right answer? Yeah. A French horn? <laughs> a DJ redo. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's super of that. bad, but it's funny. <laughs> Thank you. I'm very proud of it. <laughs> okay, so we're already recording. So I'm just going to jump into the episode. Is that cool? Are you ready? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cast of Call, where we talk all things related to the Dark Tower series by Stephen King. I'm your co-host, Rachel, and joining me is the other half of my quartet, the man who could sleep anytime, anywhere, DJ. I mean, I've I've gotten better about not doing that everywhere, but I do it sometimes. (laughs) I will fall asleep occasionally in weird places. Yes. It's fine. DJ was just torturing me with his bragging about how uh, good a sleeper he is while I ride the struggle bus every night trying to fall asleep. Oh, yeah. You just got to like, so I don't know if I'm alone in this, but I can start to like daydream while I'm half asleep and then it just leads into my regular dreams. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I do that sometimes. Uh Uh-huh. Do you lose a dream or do you, are you like when you're in a dream, you're well i'm like i'm kind of in a weird spot because like sometimes it goes my way and i can be like i want to do this and i do it and then sometimes like i get noped out of my own dream oh no (laughs) and you're like but i wanted to do this nope you're going this way like okay i guess i can pretty much like if i'm in a dream i know i'm dreaming for the most part but i can't do the thing where i just like decide what i'm gonna do because otherwise i would just fly in all of my dreams <laughs> have you had the fall dream where like you wake up screaming and you're like ah! and you feel like um, i don't know that i've had a like fall wake up screaming kind of thing but i've definitely had that thing where you when you're falling asleep and you feel like you're falling and then you're like ah mm-hmm. and you jump do you have that yeah i've um anyway <laughs> It's going to be a weird day. We're both in a weird mood today. All right. So let's talk about our plan for this episode. We are going to kick off the show with an in-depth conversation about Wizard and Glass Part 3, Come Reap, Chapter 6, Closing the Year. And then we'll we'll close out our show with our thoughts on Episode 7 of The Stand and with a question from the Facebook group. It's a little bit different, but we'll get into it when we get there. So before we do all that, though, DJ, can you please let our listeners know in a very strange and metaphorical way what our spoiler policy is on this podcast? Like a drop of dew traversing a crack (laughs) in in the rocks, dribbling down to the next rock. We will draw a line across those stones to let you know when that dew is coming. Uh, A.K.A. the Spoiler Zone. (laughs) I quit. Podcast over. Goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) I never know where you're going to go. I wasn't expecting that. (laughs) Hey, that's right out of the books. It is. It is. That's fair. That's fair. Oh, and Cord, you, uh, Cord, you, uh, you rascal, you describing your sexual moves. Ugh, Cord, this is not a this ep- this chapter is not a good look for Cord, which she hasn't had a good look yet, but somehow this is even worse than usual. Oh yeah, all yeah, right, it's a, it's yeah. Well, we'll get into it. All right, so where did we leave off last time, Deej? 
so we find out that uh you know they've there's basically a plot by uh Coral Thorin to help uh her brother along into the next world <laughs> along with like some other murderous bits coming along and we we got that info about the glass and how it eats uh Rhea so um dun 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 we're probably going to find some crazy witch stuff coming forward um so yeah uh, that's pretty much it um and then of course the gang has kind of sort of come up with a plan and uh, of action to combat uh the big coffin hunters as they try to move their oil out mm-hmm. okay and so then we jump into <laughs> chapter six closing the year and basically I don't, Stephen king in this as we move forward in this book has like started doing these long descriptions of mm-hmm. the town and everything that's going on and it sort of goes along with like the moon and the the waxing and waning of each of these different types of moons that he talks about. So in this case, he's sort of describing Midworld and the weather and the area. It's it's a farm town, but it's also an ocean town. And the temperature's not that bad, but like with the wind, it really bites into you. We've got workers kind of getting the last of the harvest in uh, kind of paints a picture of, of people realizing that char tree might be the worship of like former gods and mumbling that under their breath. The whole town is painted as this sort of picturesque, but also like end of the year, even though it's not actually the end of the year, but people have to end their year um, not figuratively, but actually because if they don't get all this stuff packed in and set up, then they won't be set up for winter and there won't be enough food to eat. And and it sort of like bounces around just kind of going through all of the different actions that are happening here in Tambury. And you've got four stars here and I obviously (laughs) butchered this. So I'm going to throw it at you and let you tell me all about Hambury's Charu tree, uh, preparations for both the festival and uh what's going on in town yeah actually there i do have a lot of (laughs) i didn't have four stars worth of of this, so i was just like description of town yes yeah so as you mentioned this chapter again ends with sort of this literary device that king has been using throughout the book which are these sort of slice of life vignettes uh that serve to kind of recenter us in the world and show us how things have been changing across the seasons as long as Roland has been here in Hanbury. Uh, and in this case, we are headed into Reap. And uh, as since our climax is coinciding with the Reap, it kind of helps set the stage for the circumstances and how there are, and what the mood is in terms of the t- entire town, since that's all going to be factoring potentially into where things go next. We also get a better look at the customs and cultures around Reap Night. I know I sort of had a mental picture of what it was like, and this kind of clarifies and kind of shows the sort of the layers to what, what's going on. You know, that it's not just a night of Reap, but it's actually kind of a, a season of Reap, or at least a, a prolonged period of time leading up to Reap. And not only is it about 
this sort of festival or celebration of reap, but there's also some degree of religious practice around it. Like the stuffy guy's hands getting painted red and that they're, and then they're being sacrificed essentially to unnamed gods. And that there is some darker level to this that to the point where people only whisper this phrase, char tree. And it doesn't tell us what that means yet, but we'll get a little bit more of a hint about that as we move forward. Also, interesting. There's a bunch of Spanish terms too. Like mm-hmm. uh, I, I didn't catch all of them, but like, do those have deeper meaning, Rachel? Or I would need to know what word specifically, but I think sort of from a larger perspective, it, again, it's kind of illustrating the culture of that area and the way that there is kind of this mixture of whatever language I speak there and Spanish that comes back to these ideas of vaqueros instead of cowboys. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's what I was like. There's the cowboy reference and then there's a couple of other ones where it's like, it's it's just so, it almost feels like rural, um, ancient, you know, Mexico or something like that where like uh, this is that sort of like tenuous village. Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to this idea that this is a Western. And so I think it's kind of taking on sort of that old West flavor where they're, uh, okay, okay. that's some of it. They use a lot of Spanish in this, like fin de año means end of year, essentially. Oh, okay. Yeah. So um, I was like, Ooh, what's this fancy word mean? <laughs> so the other thing we find out is that this period of time also is kind of a period of abstinence. There are like stolen kisses and things like that. But for the most part, people are not, having sex right now so it kind of takes on almost like a feeling of lint a little bit and i don't know that that was something that do i do you not have sex in lint i, I guess i mean I some people give that. up sex during lint yeah oh i thought it was like you just eat fish or something oh uh, i mean i think there's a lot of different things but i mean lint is also like a time of sacrifice so like people won't drink or have sex or you know i mean like div- they'll give up different things in observance of lint hmm. yes okay yeah and so there's also this backdrop of the feeling of the weather changing, growing darker, colder, more savage, while the people, particularly the women, are, like, racing against the clock in, uh, in order to, like, fill up the stores to get them through the winter. And so it kind of creates this sense of vulnerability matched with this desire to appease dark gods. That is something that is, there is this idea of feeling out of control and it kind of being channeled into like appeasing the wills of the gods right and it creates a tension that uh, of just sort of like sort of feeling that vulnerability and your mortality and racing against the clock and then you add to that this new sense of wrongness that king describes in this where everyone can't quite put their finger on what the problem is but it takes that different. already kind of like survival tension and creates a powder keg where everybody's like even more uneasy. They're more scared. And I think that, that that kind of sets the stage for where the mood and the vibe and the um, emotions of the people in town are pretty – could potentially be pretty much like a powder keg and like pretty dangerous. Um, like if you think about people – mobs and things like that you add fear and sense of dread and they're going to be more likely to behave irrationally and since we know that that's a part of whatever coral has in mind that's definitely um <laughs> like it, it gives you a sense of dread as a listener or a reader i also think there's some really great touches in here in the language like uh talking about how the wind essentially tastes like tears again a lot of foreshadowing here not so great if we're talking about a tragedy <laughs> and 
I, I wanted to point out this one quote, kind of how this chapter or this section ends. There is a sense, inarticulate, but very much there, that things have gone amiss this season. It is the closing of the year. It is also the closing of the peace. For there is, in the sleepy outworld barony of Magus, that world, midworld's last great conflict will shortly begin. It is from here that the blood will begin to flow. In two years, no more, the world as it has been will be swept away. It starts here. From the field of roses, the dark tower cries out in its beast's voice. Time is a face on the water. So, <laughs> first of all, that's just some like really great flowery, uh, like very romantic language from from King. But I think moreover, the takeaway here is that no matter what happens next, no matter what happens with our heroes, whether they prevail or they fail in this this battle, the war mm -hmm. is essentially lost. Hope what they're feeling is kind of the end of beginning of the end and that hope is sort of lost. That's the wrongness that they're experiencing. So I don't know. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, it's, it's dark. Uh, the weird, that weird poetry at the end, I remember the line where it's like time is a face reflected in water. And I'm like, what is, what, what does that even mean? Like, is that, uh, and I was trying to like roll through my head of how that metaphor would work, but mm -hmm. it, it doesn't, it doesn't sit right with me. It seems like why, what? <laughs> I think what it is, is it means like, if you look at your reflection in the water, it's not like a mirror. It's, you know, there are ripples and it is not a clear picture and it's muddied and um, unclear. You know so, what I mean? How does that define time though? Like, is it saying that like time isn't um, a thing that is, Always going to happen the same way, or soft and, and turbulent, be... and and I think it kind of comes back to this idea that the world is breaking down and the world is moving on. Hmm. I think okay, that's how I yeah. took it. That was my. I don't know. I was completely confused by that metaphor, so I, I don't even even know the the part I found interesting was that like the the uh, full Earth babies, mm -hmm. and so like everybody basically saves up until this moment when they actually have reaping night and yeah. then they all go at it. Yep. Except for Coral Thorin, who's, you know, got a man of her own. And even though he's got a leg, that's a little iffy, yep. he can still bounce that thing around, you know? Yeah. There's two couples that are still having sex, which are yeah, and Jonas and Coral and Susan and Roland. Yeah. And who are that's the, like the A, B, Apex. Exactly. You know? Exactly. I mean, I'm glad you brought that up. I was going to bring it up when we got later that like, those are, those are the only two that are still banging and that they are sort of, you know, they're like, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Sorry. I'm tired today, too. No, like no, that's fine. They're they're sort of like analogs for each analogs, other. Like, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes. They're analogs for each other. So last <laughs> thing in this section before we move on is that we're since we're kind of left with this sense of the calm before the storm. Both mm -hmm. literally, because the weather is changing, but also this whole section is just kind of like a series of scenes where all of our players are getting into their last positions and getting ready before whatever is going to happen in their showdown on Reap Day or most likely the day before Reap Day if the big coffin hunters have their way. So everybody's making their final plans at this point. So we got this great like scene building of what's going on in Hambury. And then we like camera pans over across a bunch of people working in the field to Coral Thorin just like kind of hanging out on one of the streets and Shimi sort of like wandering by 
And like he has this sort of cute reaction. He's carrying some like graph barrels full of um I think apple apple brandy or apple beer or whatever. Mm-hmm. And like she's like, What you up to? And and he sort of like chats her up for a little bit and tells her she like so dang old cute. Yeah, people are gonna get warm and hot, you know, when they mm-hmm. <laughs> and then when they're warm and hot they need to drink and there's gonna be dancing and so on. And then like Coral Thorne has this moment where she like reminisces about some of the hot passionate love she's been having. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then like kind of smiles about Shimi and Shimi's like, Yep, taking all this graft to the seafront. And like, boy, girl, don't you look pretty? And, and, <laughs> and it's interesting. So, like, the moment I I read that, I was like, oh, I bet she's like still exhibiting afterglow from like this hot, hot lovemaking that she's been getting going on upstairs. Because like, uh, Shimi described her cheeks as like rosy and flush, mm-hmm. and she, you know. And then, like, when she flatters, she's almost like, oh, oh, my. Yes, yes. you're right. <laughs> you you little rascal. Get out of here, you. <laughs> yeah, literally the only person happy in town is Coral Thorin. Everybody she's, else like, plotting is plotting evil. Yeah, oh, she's plotting to have her brother murdered. And she's just like, I mean, she's a good analog to what we'll get into with Cord, which is a very different situation. But yeah, Coral has, she's in a great mood. She's got, she's getting her groove on. Like, it tells you a lot about this ongoing dynamic between her and Jonas that she, you know, she's excited that her plot is moving forward, but I do think she also is kind of smitten. You know what I mean? She has that little sort of smitten kitten blush to her cheeks. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's interesting. I, I was trying to figure out, like, why this chat this section is even really included i mean aside from just knowing that her and like what we come away from this is knowing that her and jonas are still banging she's happy she when she thinks about what she has planned for reap she kind of like has this very sinister dark joke with herself about how things are getting hot but what's Mm -hmm. the purpose of the chapter and i think it's it's twofold one like i said you know to have uh, to remind us of what's going on with her and Jonas, but I do think it's actually meant to be a contrasting chapter to what we'll get into with Cord. Because okay. it's two sisters, brother murder, different response. <laughs> so yeah, okay. One is happy and the other one is crazy. Freaking um, crazy, man. So we we continue to follow Shimi after this little incident, and he's heading out to the, the seafront to deliver that graph that he's got on his back. Apparently they have just like giant tanks mm-hmm. <laughs> that they like dump new graph on top of old Ain't graph. No party like a seafront party. <laughs> and like you open it up and it's a smell of something super strong. And this just paints this gross picture of almost like the day after party beer that's been sitting in the can and like the smell yeah. of your kitchen. Yeah, It's not, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I guess you keep alcohol in barrels. So like presumably it's closed, but you're right. It doesn't sound good. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I guess appetizing. I mean, I guess from alcohol this perspective, like alcohol aesthetic. is like gonna kill. Yeah, anything bad. So it like, doesn't sound very good. Well, so the uh, the or and this is like a weird aside, but the origins of alcohol were like basically water was not drinkable in a lot of areas, but right. if you turned it into beer, you could consume liquid. And not fear for your life or dysentery right. or whatever. You know, jar, uh, what is it, Jardis? Is that? Guardia? Guard, Jardia, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, from that perspective, I guess, like, 
the alcohol is keeping these booze barrels clean, but it's that's super nasty. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I'm... And then like, are they like I I I was trying to visualize giant tanks. Like, are is just someone just crawling up to the top and like spoon spooning out? Maybe there's a spigot below. I hope so. Let's hope I there's hope yeah so. yeah yeah. So Shimi imp- empties his barrels in there, and we kind of pan up, and it turns out that like um susan's hanging out in the shack where they are filling up the graph barrels and she helps him with the uh graph barrels pours it in and then she's like i got the plan and then we find out that um shimi's basically going to be smuggling back a bunch of uh fireworks and other explosive devices in these empty graph barrels on his way back into town and it's interesting because like Shimi does it kind of like matter of factly. Susan's kind of like a little iffy about it, but then like at the end, the the last reaction from uh, Shimi is like, "Hey, you know it's the right season. Can I get one of them their kisses?" <laughs> yep, yep, <laughs> yep. And like he like gives Susan a kiss and like floats away on on uh cloud nine just to get excited and you're like oh you little weirdo i know i know i know this yeah so this section we learned what susan and Sheenie's part is and all of this and how it is that they're kind of away from the action and presumably would be safe we'll see um shimi and then uh, yeah again the other thing that really stood out in this section is shimi getting his kiss and i just man king is really twisting the knife by adding these like very sweet moments between these characters that we are very concerned for how they're going i mean like the book is setting us up to believe that these two are gonna die right i mean i I, that's not a spoiler i don't know if that's i mean i'm confident about susan i don't know about shimi i genuinely don't know but everything about Everything about the way that this is being set up, the way that it's becoming so bittersweet, I have to believe that Shimi is also in some serious trouble here. And it's these moments like this that are so sweet between the two of them that make me feel that way and fill me with this dread. But also it makes it so much sadder because I just I, I, I read this section, this little part at the end where... You know, he's like blushing and he's just like, <laughs> I want to take my reap day kiss from you. And then she laughs and thinks it's cute and gives him a kiss. And he's just like so happy about it. I le- I read it a couple times just because I thought it was such a sweet moment. And it just made me really think like, oh, God, King, stop it. Gentle with my feefies. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was my takeaway from the section. <laughs> All right. So camera pans away from uh, Shimi and the shack. And we pan over to the Sitgo patch where basically there's like a team of men guarding what's going on. They're starting to empty out these tankers. In fact, I think there's only two out of the bunch that still have oil in them. Mm-hmm. And a bunch of them have already been transported out. So they've been busy. And Reynolds like takes a look and notices that these these guys are not packing like the best of weapons. And... <laughs> They're not really, um, they're not really up to the challenge of actually battling with anybody. Yeah, and, and it um, there was a weapon that they mentioned specifically that's not even a gun. Like the guns sound pathetic, but what was the other one, Rachel? Bolas. The bolas. Okay, so I guess it's just a couple of rocks on a string, and like you're coming after gunslingers. With, yeah, with 
<laughs> like rope and, and rocks. Like, yeah, maybe like if you're uh, a super skilled person, but I, I don't know. Um, yeah. and, and so basically they don't have the best of people managing this and his henchmen may or may not be up to um, an ambush by some, you know, young and up and coming gunslingers to actually like come out here and take over the place. So we're not really painting a very positive picture of no <laughs> of their reinforcements. And this continues on throughout the chapter. So you've got four stars here and I had to take a swing at this twice. Oops, I don't um, know why I have four. I should only have like one or two. <laughs> um, sorry about that. <laughs> so, okay. So now yeah. you have one star. Yeah. I would just say like, it's very clear that Reynolds is like, you guys are going to need to ambush them if this is going to work. So be quiet, keep your cool, kill them right away. Because like you said, they're just not up to the task. I, the one little thing I wanted to say about this was that we get Reynolds point of view in this chapter. We don't get a lot of Reynolds point of views, but I do like that King takes a moment to remind us exactly of how vain he is. And it's the ways that he's differentiating all of these villain characters. You know what I mean? Like when you're in Jonas's head, it's a very different experience than when you're in DePape's head or when you're in, in Reynolds' head. And in this case, he does so by reminding us how vain he is. You know, he's he's walking across the sicko field and he has this hat on he doesn't like. He has to keep pulling it down over his head and it looks goofy because it's going to blow away. And he has to, he looks like a cowboy and he doesn't like it. And I just think that that's like very um, good writing to center us into the personality of the character it's very economical you're like oh yeah that's right this is the thing we know about him is that he's very vain about his appearance and he's always prancing around in his very fancy flowing coats and stuff and he's very uncomfortable when he doesn't get to be his usual fancy dandy self. that's actually a really good point though like so uh, we mentioned earlier like the biting wind and mm-hmm. and then he he's thinking about like how he's dressed and how someone might mistake him as just like you yeah. know cow folk <laughs> yeah such a snob and like he has to wear those clothes because it's cold and like the wind is bitey and like it's not that comfortable and yet he's almost like um has disdain oh yeah level of outfit oh yeah definitely i mean like he you he, he makes a point of being very judgmental about everybody's appearance when he's there you know he's looking at people's teeth and like how just how they look right you can tell mm-hmm. that he doesn't really doesn't really like people that he doesn't think are very attractive. Um, yeah. The other thing is, is that Reynolds also kind of points out that he is feeling how that there's something off and there's like an offness in the air, in the, the mood of, of, of Hambry. And so it's not just locals who are feeling whatever it is that feels wrong right now. Anybody in the area can feel it. And he kind of, says like he would be happier just leaving which reminded me of something that jonas had said earlier it's interesting that actually it's it's something that comes up with multiple characters throughout this chapter is like everybody kind of just wishes they could leave but they are committed to doing this in his case this is not something he really cares about it's just a job that he's doing yeah you're right even roland is like i could just sneak out roland cuthbert everybody just wants to bounce so maybe we, they should have, but oh well. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Um, so we cut to Rhea, and she's in a bad way. Um, she's got Ooh. like her her stitched up snake and head and body like wrapped around her. She's staring into this ball constantly, like watching petty things happen. Mm-hmm. She 
was going to the bathroom in the toilet and now she's like not carrying the ball that far because she doesn't want to leave it and just going to the bathroom where she's at to the point where her mutie cat is no longer interested in visiting her anymore. Mm-hmm. Which like that cat is probably the last person to abandon her. Right. And, yeah. and she's like sunken eyeballs like uh, last bits of life being sucked out of her by this crystal ball. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing is like, she doesn't realize it yet, but Stephen King takes efforts to note that if she knew that was the trade-off, she still may have accepted it because of the enjoyment of just watching yeah. people be cruel to each other. She would and, have made like, that trade. Ugh. Yeah. And there's a lot of like weird, like it's not super bad, but it's like, boys jerking off to like peepholes of their sister and like uh, all kinds of other weird stuff and you're just like gross about this (laughs) and then like we basically cut to this scene and i don't know if this is implied that ria's watching these boys or not but they they're like a bunch of like kind of shitty kids they're the ones that were cutting the tails off of all the other dogs and they've got like meat and they've shoved a firecracker in oh, there. I hate it. And I they're like it. trying to it. feed it to this like stray and the stray grabs it and and tries to eat it but it blows like half of his face off and it's just <sighs> this horrible oh and then like someone's like hey you kids and they run off and you're just like oh man this is how serial killers are born right I think a hundred percent yeah and so Rhea's like kind of. I know I blend two things together, but Rhea's like basically sort of like boring into these and just being like, I can just pee where I'm at. Yeah, man. Oh, man. That's super dark, too. Yeah, this little uh, twofer here is about as dark as it gets, right? So if you thought Rhea was looking bad last time we saw her, oh boy, you haven't seen nothing yet. Uh, She was withering before, but now she is basically devolving uh she's like you said she's not going to the bathroom in the bathroom anymore the person who sewed her the head back on her snake is not the same person she is at this point she's kicking her cat away she's ignoring her other familiar she's drooling and just staring into this thing she's not sleeping it is things are looking rough for ria if she wasn't such a garbage person i would feel very sad for her ria more like diarrhea Oh my god! I can't believe it took us this long to get get there. I know, right? <laughs> now that you like, I hadn't thought of it. But now that you've said it, I'm like, how how it you was... can't unsee that one. <laughs> no. So so yeah, the one little detail in here I wanted to kind of get your idea or get your your thoughts on. There is a mention of the fact that she no longer has to pass her hand over the glass for it to work. What do you think that's trying to say? Um. So. I actually took that in two ways. One is that the ball kind of wants her to conserve her energy so it has more to eat. Mm-hmm. And then two, that she has just gotten that weak that she's hunched over this ball and it is going into maximum feed. Right. So, like, at first, you know, she's using a little bit of her own, say, mystical powers mm-hmm. to activate the ball. And, like, she needs a little bit of concentration. But as the ball breaks down her barriers and, like, starts to really feed on her, that's no longer necessary because she doesn't have any of that left. 
to fight it or to possibly like stand off from it. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking either the ball is just so powerful now it doesn't need to be activated or like if the, it eats enough of her that it just like is like I got this. Right. Or or it could be like the pretense is gone, like we're not even pretending like you have some autonomy oh. here. I'm just yeah, eating yeah. you. Or it could be that she's so like it's like they're merged in a way that they're kind of like one thing and they know there no longer needs to be any magic. I don't know. I, I think you can interpret it a few different ways. I just, it just tells you that we have entered late stage, whatever this is. Well, it's kind of that American gods thing where like the one goddess has you chant to her until she like engulfs you. Oh, yes, I do remember that goddess. Yeah. <laughs> That is emblazoned in my mind. I will yeah, never forget un, that scene. Forget that one. Um, and so, like the ball and Rhea are sort of like in that same moment yeah. where, like, she has fallen into pure worship of the ball. Yeah. And at that point, like, the ball has complete control of yeah. what is and what was. Yeah. And, and the thing is, like, before the ball was showing her some like really crazy stuff. Now it's just showing her like basic stuff, and she's like, "Yeah, still interested. I'll I'll stay on my cable TV subscription. Thanks." It's also this like this weird confirmation bias that's happening where she's just she talks about like she's glad she left that society because it's so terrible, and then the ball keeps showing her the worst in people, which confirms what she thinks about them. I it makes me think that there is kind of an interesting Rhea story. Like, why would she have? turned her back on society like i feel like maybe there's some there is a, a grain of something like there used there. to be a young Rhea that was like yeah i love everybody this right. is great right we're all looking through the tulips and then like one day someone like throws oatmeal in her face and she's like i'm done yeah. done with society this is not my place yeah that's what i yeah i mean it definitely it it piqued my curiosity all right the other thing we got to talk about is the my most hated scene ever which is the killing of the dog it's so cool okay. i fucking hate it animal cruelty is my number one trigger i i don't like it in books i don't like it in movies i don't like it i just think it's so sad but that's not really relevant because there is some really we have to talk about the section because there is actually a lot of symbolism in this section okay uh yeah i just cringed because i have two small dogs that i love right i um... don't i don't currently have dogs but i love dogs and i have cats and oh if somebody hurt my cats oh no 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 that would be bad that would turn me into Rhea. (laughs) i would blow their faces off um anyway so there is some symbolism here probably the most overt being that here we have the little coffin hunters offering the dog deadly bait and the dogs falling for it and like taking the bait and dying and we know that right now the big coffin hunters have basically given the you know the our quartet the deadly bait which they appear to be taking which is pretty foreboding mm-hmm. yeah the other thing is that as they're leaving the woman calls them ravens and says and the narrator kind of tells us that they do actually sound like ravens as they're laughing as they're running away and it it goes into this whole repeated bird motif that happens throughout this chapter and of course that made me think of the rook skull that's still out there still very much in play we're not sure what is happening with that so as much as i hated this section i do have to admit there is some solid metaphor and foreshadowing work done in it huh i, I didn't even pick that up i was just like so distracted by totally the, uh, the dog like mouth missing one good eye like Ugh. staring at them trying to figure out what happened and oh my god stop dead. stop i hate it it's so upsetting i hate yeah, it it's, okay. it's Let, so... let's move on to people being cruel to each other please oh okay okay, <laughs> okay. Uh, so uh, we pan away from this like horrible alley scene of firecracker um, 
uh, murder yes. uh, to uh, uh, Keith Burton, Elaine, basically like hanging out in Eyebolt Canyon, um, sort of digging and like planting a bunch of fireworks slash bombs uh, around this dried brush area. And like, this is interesting because like, this is the first time we get to sort of see what the thinny is up to. Yeah. And like, not 100%, but like, enough to like really make you feel weird about it like from uh from keeper's perspective he's basically like doing this work and the thinny is whispering in his mind like hey you could join me yeah and like you wouldn't have to deal with any of this hassle like that girl that's dating roland she could have loved you i have the quote here if you want it yeah it's like yeah read it because it's better than my paraphrasing Come on, Bert, leave all this foolishness behind. The drums, the pride, the fear of death, the loneliness you laugh at because all you can think to do. And the girl, leave her too. You love her, don't you? Even if you don't, you want her. It's sad that she loves your friend instead of you. But if you come to me, all of that will stop bothering you very soon. So come on, what are you waiting for? Uh, Keith Bert kind of like gets a little bit up in arms with Elaine. And Elaine feels the same effect of the thinny, like, sort of, like, shooting yeah. into his, like, subconscious. And, like, they're basically able to – well, Elaine is pretty much the the one who realizes what's going on and knows that if he picks a little too much at Keith Burt, it could have turned into a, a bad deal. It's actually and- the reverse, which is interesting. Oh, is it? Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. I thought um, no, he was it's like, Cuthbert. no, you're Elaine... doing a bad job. And then like he's like, no, I guess I'll keep letting you do the bad job. No, I think Bert is, like, it says something sort of innocuous, like, hey, make sure you dig that deep. And Elaine uncharacteristically gives him total stink eye. And Bert kind of joke makes a joke. And Elaine takes a minute to realize it's a joke. And then it kind of diffuses. And Bert's like, oh, shit. Like, Elaine is feeling it just as much as I am. So... I think, okay, I miss. Yeah. I totally misinterpreted that. I thought Elaine taking a minute meant that like he knew what was going on. That Bert was. I mean, I think he talked himself down and realized it was a joke. But the point is, is that's totally unlike Elaine. He yeah. he's the peacemaker of them. So for him to have this flash of anger shows you how effective. And 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 we know he has the touch. So if Bert is feeling it, Elaine is feeling whatever this evil crap this thinny is two, putting out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's really super, super interesting because, like, in the past, we've just seen, like, birds fly by the thinny and it reach out and grab them. But we don't know the interaction with the birds. Right. And so it sounds like it's almost like, um, what's the, uh, what's the, is it the sirens from Ulysses? Uh, 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 I think um, so. Yeah, yeah. So Ulysses? Like, you, yeah, Ulysses. Uh, Homer's Ulysses. Like, the sirens where, like, the one guy doesn't put his earplugs in. Right, right. Yeah, so, like, basically, this is, like, a big, giant, floating mist mm-hmm. of of sirens calling at you to, yes. like, come closer and then eat you. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that was not what I thought of the thinny at first, because, you know, everybody describes the noise as this, like, mm-hmm. disturbing, horrible sound. But then you get close enough, and the disturbing, horrible sound turns into, like... Hey, why don't you come into me? Yeah, yeah, come a little closer. I'm hungry, but you're hungry too for nothingness. I can give you that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? Super that thing dark. is sinister as hell. Yes, yes. 
Yeah, I think, yeah, I think, you know, we find out this is basically the companion piece to the Shimi Susan where we find out like what they're doing with the gunpowder. But I think the like, you're right, the most important thing that an interesting thing I would say that happens in the section is when we get to hear what the Thinny is saying, because I mean, essentially, it's not really the Thinny that's saying it, it's getting in his head and ostensibly Cuthbert is saying these things to himself, which makes it very revealing as to both his desires but also his insecurities like where his weak places lie Mm -hmm. and it comes back to this jealousy that he has of roland and his discomfort with what's happening with susan even though he's supposedly put this behind them there's still kind of that there's a rawness to that relationship so i thought that was really interesting insight into cuthbert it made me wonder like what the hell's going on in elaine's mind the other thing that happens in this is there is a quick little sort of bit of gallows humor where they joke about dying young and i'm like mm, oh, yeah. is that a joke or is that foreshadowing <laughs> well so i think the statement is like uh do you think we'll be successful and like he's like well even if we're not it's gonna be a pretty big explosion yeah they'll know we were here yeah <laughs> oh man all right so uh we pan away from them because this is like uh days of our lives episode where we yes. have like little bits of bobs. Um so we pan over to Susan. She's sort of hanging out at this event and uh all of Thorin is also there. They're basically sitting on either side of him and doing this like meet and greet sort of thing at a table where they are think or everybody is like congratulating them on how good they did on their food but they both know that they had nothing to do with the food right and it's like this super weird scene where um stephen king like flies back to tell you that basically susan's not gonna make it by saying like little did she know yeah <laughs> That Hart Thorne will never end up sleeping with Susan, but all of Thorne is still mad at Susan, even though her husband will never sleep with Susan. Well, I think that's also Susan wishing she could tell all of that because it's killing her to see how sad Olive is when yeah. she knows you don't need to be sad. It's not going to happen. Although, ultimately, the betrayal is that her husband wants to do it. So, yeah, yeah. Um, <sighs> well, and then there's, well, we'll get to the yeah. the bed thing in a bit, but yeah. But yeah, so then we pan back, like, Susan gets done with the event. She, like, slips away to head home, and she sort of has a plan. Um, So she pops her head in, like, hears uh, her aunt snoring, or, Mm -hmm. like, wistfully sleeping, whatever. And so her her father had, like, an office, I guess, in the back of the barn, and so she wants to go check that out. So she kind of wanders over, and she's examining these things. There's a, a spur in there. There's some other stuff and as she holds each of the items up she sort of has like a little bit of a daydream about the events of her father dying and we start to get a different picture of this and she's starting to like sort of not really believe the story that she was told about the snake scaring Mm -hmm. her father's horse and flipping over and as she sort of I don't know if it's, uh, I almost wanted to like lean this on the touch a little bit where she's sort of getting a little bit of psychic imprints mm. from these items. I don't know if you got that, Rachel. Uh, um, I think it was more just like she's just really thinking about all the she's things. She's realizing that, you know, she's like, she had a picture in her mind of what had happened based on the story she has been told mm-hmm. and she's doubted it. And in this moment, she's kind of putting it all together and realizing like, when she pictures it now, 
the snake is not there because he did get murdered. Yeah, and so it, it, she's touching all these items, and finally she gets to this this book, and her father kept like really excellent records of what was going on with the horses and the breeding and the threaded stock and and so on. And she's thumbing through it and she realizes that someone has ripped out five or six pages from the back of this mm-hmm. book that is basically the tracking system for all of these horses. And she sort of starts to think about all the extra horses on the drop and all of those things combined. Horses, and then- of course, is. Yeah, horses, of course. <laughs> uh, and uh, and she starts to think about that and then think about what that implies and who would have access to these books with which to be able to rip those pages out. And, and there's like this haunting description of her thinking about Aunt Cord as like getting one gold piece biting it to make sure that mm-hmm. she knew it was real and then being like sure i'll rip those pages out yep and then like tucking away in her pocket before double checking that she has it again and again and it's not showing at court in a in a real good light no no it does not <laughs> no and, and so like at that moment Aunt cord uh, uh obviously who else would would show up and be accusational uh towards susan yep <laughs> this is where the uh um, oh dear! The dew <laughs> in the crack. No! <laughs> Court accuses her of just recently being with um uh Susan or Susan being with Roland, and like I guess Aunt Court has gotten even wackier since uh, Thorin's sister has been fooling around with her heartthrob. Yep. And at this moment, like Stephen King takes a moment to say, like her nightgown was unbuttoned a little bit and susan realizes that she's lost a ton of weight yeah and and it's not in a healthy manner on top of everything else that aunt cord is like panicking about to the point where you can still see the pillow lines where she was sleeping like pushed into her body Uh and so aunt cord basically comes at her and is like you've been with that boy haven't you and Susan's like back the up girl (laughs) and and like lays out this whole um, plot about her aunt basically knowing and being involved and and Aunt Cord sort of like slips a little bit of the mask to say like well he shouldn't have been you know against those folks and and so that basically keys in that Aunt Cord knew that yeah. her father's demise was like uh, uh, basically imminent, and then Susan does the the most. It's it's sort of um, I want to say hurtful, but also like uh, uplifting at the same time. She's like she basically pans out this little section where she says, "You know, you tried to be my mother when I needed a mother most, mm-hmm. and I don't want to taint that memory." with who you've become as this person and and to say that to aunt cord is to basically break her glass wall Mm -hmm. of this facade that she's created over her being a victim of all this circumstance Mm -hmm. and actually being a proactive um component of this whole horrible thing And, and 
Aunt Cord uh, just is is like busted by this, and Susan er, Susan basically like turns around and leaves. And I almost want to jump right to like the effigy burning, but I will stop. Let's stop here because I do have a lot to say about this section, and then we'll, we'll get there. We'll definitely get there, and it, it leads in so nicely to the ominous ending. I feel like let's save it for the end. Yeah, I just wish that they were together because this is such an epic scene that yeah. it's like. You just need to finish it, man. Quit cutting away. Don't cut away. All right. I'm sorry. You got like seven stars on this. All right. Well, really quickly, I just want to bounce back to that scene in Seafront where we get the detail pointed out that Susan and Oliver sitting behind beside Thorin as he's showing off his power and his. They described him as a peacock. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, Susan thinks like, you know, only women can understand what this feels like. And it's a small detail, but it just is a reminder of something we've talked about a lot in this book and and that is the gender politics in Hambry and having the why sitting there like the men doesn't even occur to him that it would be painful for for Olive to be sitting there or mm-hmm. care and it just tells you a lot about sort of the chauvinistic car- uh, culture that is in Hambry so I just want to point that out really quickly because Susan made a point of saying it but the most important stuff obviously happens in this study Susan comes to this conclusion that not only was her father actually murdered by Fran Lingle but that her for the first time ever realizes that Cord while she probably had nothing to do with the actual murder in the aftermath turned a blind eye and maybe even helped cover it up and Cord bursts in Apparently Rhea is not the only person who's been wasting away in the last couple of weeks. In her case, instead of being obsessed with the whatever she's seeing in the ball, she's kind of obsessed with what's happening with Susan as well as Jonas uh, moving on with Coral. But also now with this added information of the fact that she probably, I mean, and later is confirmed that she actually did help cover up this murder. There has been sort of this core of guilt that she has been compartmentalizing that is eating away at her. And this discovery really kind of brought together and crystallized why her relationship with Susan is the way that it is. Like, yes, she's greedy. Yes, she's selfish. But it felt really extreme and cold. Now, if you add into this the the complicating factor of the fact that she is kind of harboring this guilt, every time she looks at Susan... Susan makes her think of her brother that she betrayed every time. And Susan, on the other hand, all she talks about is her dad. She wears her dad's shirt. She wants to, she, you know, talks about his name, all brings up his name constantly. Like, how could you do this to Pat Delgado's daughter? You know, on and on and on about Pat Delgado, not realizing that there's like a double wound that's being inflicted here. And it's making it very difficult for Cord not to confront the fact that what she has done And so you add that to the fact that she also is very jealous of of Susan's youth and her beauty and her desirability. And all of those things kind of mix together in a way that someone who is not super self-reflective of Cord, it makes it very easy for her to be cruel because it's her way of separating from her and not having to confront her own guilt in this situation. So... I don't know. I, I, she made sense to me in a way that she had not up until this point with this information. I don't know about you. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I mean, so basically, uh, cord in, has been holding this guilt in the whole time. Yeah. And the last thing she wants to be is confronted with it. Mm-hmm. But alternatively, 
it's weird that she was completely fine and healthy until she had as a love interest and her prospects for more money go down the drain. Mm -hmm. So that tells me that it's less about caring that she made this horrible mistake with uh, Susan's father and more about her own self-preservation and her love for this guy that obviously isn't going to be into her. Mm -hmm. And so those, those two like basic core things are what is already driven her to this, like not eating crazed Mm -hmm. state. And then the slap in the face is just that Susan basically points out that like, Hey, you were actually a good person at one point. Yeah. And now you really suck. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And so like, that's not the core blow, but it's like a blow on top of already being like fatally wounded. It's the, it's the straw, right? right? It's the one that breaks yeah, yeah, the camel's exactly. back. Yeah. Yep. The other, and, and so one oh, last thing before we move on is that like we were saying how court is desperate to stop thinking about Pat. On the other hand, this is the scene where Susan kind of very clearly sees the face of her father in, in you know, the dark tower parlance, right? Where we've mm-hmm. watched Susan throughout this entire book really have this internal struggle about wanting to be with Roland, but breaking her promise to Thorin. And the whole thing about her father, like, really comes down to whether or not she would disappoint her father. And in this moment, when Cord is accusing her of being faithless, she's like, no, I've been true. And it resonates with her in a way that she realizes that she actually it has been doing the, the right thing, that she hasn't been faithless, she hasn't failed her father, that the person that failed her father was the people that murdered him and the sister that helped cover it up. And so this has been, this is kind of the end of a really important character arc that Susan has had throughout the book occurs in this chapter, (sighs) which makes me nervous. (laughs) Why are we wrapping up these plot lines? If if it's not going to go poorly for Susan, but yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. uh, I I don't think Stephen King leaves a lot of like question marks. No, No, especially pretty quick here in one or two sections away. He makes it very clear that it's a wrap for Susan, but all right, that was it. Okay. So while we're yanking away at your heartstrings, we pan to this quiet bedroom where all of Thorin has slept by herself for more years than not. And her husband in another room away, awakened by a nightmare. She sort of like stumbles through the halls of this chilly, uh, I don't know if it's a castle or Mm -hmm. it's like a big mansion or whatever. And like finally finds her way to her husband's bedroom and he's sound asleep. And she just wants the warmth of her husband next to her. And she tries to snuggle up against him. So freaking sad, dude. So sad. Just to, like, have that feeling of how it used to be. And he's, like, he's so asleep that he reaches back and holds her hand. And she, like, remembers how he used to do that with her when they were young. (sighs) And wonder how their relationship ever went astray. And we cut to like her own thoughts and she's had this horrible nightmare. Right. And the nightmare is basically like this shadow stretching over all of Hambry and all of, mm-hmm. all of the land and like wherever it stretches blood is, is there. And, and she pans up to her husband dead and his eyes are gouged out and he's got mm-hmm. like a skull in his lap. And she's got to tell him. She really needs to tell him. But when he reaches back and touches her hand, she's comforted for just a moment and, like, falls asleep mm-hmm. next to him. 
missing him. And then like this makes it even more sad. I was I I had to stop for a second, like wipe a tear away from my face. Oh, <laughs> yeah, because she's like she's so she still so misses this love that they had. Yeah. And then, like, he's so she, gross too. He's like crack a lacking everywhere yeah, he moves in the bed. She just wants to snuggle up. Yep. And she like and she even talks about the familiarity of his back and, and like how used to him she is. And when she wakes up in the morning, he's rolled as far away from her as he can in the bed and like left her to her own side. And she is basically concerned that she might be found in the bed and gets up and sneaks back out of the room with this like sort of heartbroken, <laughs> just mm-hmm. sad uh, Olive Thorin at the dawn of the morning, like climbing back into her own bed across the castle or whatever. It's, oh, it's rough. It is real sad, real sad. Yeah, I mean, this is another one of those sections where I'm kind of like, hmm, I wonder why this was inserted in here. Um, And I I think it's done intentionally. Confirms how sad she seemed outwardly. We get that confirmation that it's just as sad inside. But more importantly, she goes in this room and she has what appears to be some kind of prophetic dream. We know that probably... If everything goes according to Big Coffin Hunter and, and Coral Thorne's plan, he is going to be dead tomorrow. But she also has this dream of, uh, like you said, the shadow. The shadow is actually created by the wings of a rock, which is like a giant mythological bird. Because, hello, we're doing bird motifs in this chapter. Again, it calls back to this idea of the rook skull, which makes me very nervous. And the chapter opened with this whole story about how bloodshed would come to... Hambry, that this is where it would all begin so what she her dream is referencing a few things here it's referencing potentially whatever future event is going to take place that causes the world to move on in this area that begins here in Hambry. it also references the murder potential murder of her husband and it references a bird and the bird skull which again is still in play and kind of goes back to this idea of the symbolism of rooks essentially are bad omens. So I think there's like levels of metaphor that are happening here with this dream. And so I'm kind of wondering, is this just a scene to create tension or what, what is the purpose of this dream? Is it going to be that when he's found dead, she's going to be, I don't know. I don't know. I guess I don't, I guess we'll have to keep reading. By the fact that she already knew he's going to be dead. I don't know. Or maybe even more like murder, murder, murder. I, I don't know. I don't know what's going on with this, but I, I, I guess maybe as we go forward, it'll make more sense in context. I thought it was a really interesting section. Uh, I loved the imagery of the giant bird's wings and blood flowing everywhere behind it. Um, but I don't really understand the purpose of it yet. What do you think? Uh, so this is, well, it's a good AB from uh, Susan and Olive in their like sort I of guess that's um, true. weird roles. Mm-hmm. So basically you start with like Susan's perspective in the previous section. And then like we don't really get a good window into Olive until we cut to this other section where this describes her still longing and love for her husband and a time when they still got along that isn't there anymore. Mm, that's true. Like it kind of is like the demise of a relationship in the case. Yep. Of- yep. Also, if it goes back to this oh. idea that you had a, the shine, like maybe, maybe they're both kind of seeing something more clearly than they did before without realizing it. 
Yep, exactly. And so if you AB it like that, then basically the longing for the previous relationship and the understanding of the death of her current relationship Mm -hmm. also is mirrored in like sort of a metaphoric way in the dream Mm. both like from a loss of what she had and a loss of everything in the dream yeah to also like the physical aspects because we know that uh thorin's uh sister is you know in cahoots to get a bird so like it works on multiple levels yeah. and therefore makes it even better metaphor than it would be normally mm-hmm. uh, be- because of that. So yeah, I actually think this, this section though, like kind of out of the blue is really good. Yeah. And, and I mean, it made me cry. So yeah, I no, I, I don't, I like the section. I'm just like, what are we, what is the purpose of this section? Cause yeah, it's gotta be to draw like a juxtaposition between Susan. I think and you're Olive, right. Plus I think you're right. The, the like double entendre of her losing her man in like waking hours, plus losing her man in dreaming hours. Mm-hmm. And then like, that's basically underlined three times by the fact that she tries to snuggle up with him and he just uh, scoots away from her. Ugh, yeah. It's brutal, dude. It is brutal. What a dubious pride, dude. <laughs> you know, like, let him go, girl. Go find you some, like, hot scullery boy. <laughs> Do well, you, I, boo. <laughs> moving on. So um, we had this horribly depressing bit with uh, uh, Olive and and her husband, uh, sort of husband, pseudo husband. I don't know. And then we cut to DePape. And he's rolling into the sheriff's office. Yep. And he's looking around, and the sheriff's like doing some weird stuff and he's like well, what's going on here why is this so weird and he realizes this is the first time he hasn't seen mr avery chugging down food mm-hmm. and i i bring that up and the, the reason i wanted to like talk about that is because there's a moment too where he's imagining whether avery will fail or not and and he describes it as um the boys cutting the fat from his legs and feeding it to wolverines <laughs> Oh, man, he really just doesn't like this guy. No. And so backing up, um, basically, uh, um, Sheriff Avery's got a bunch of kind of like iffy guns and weapons laying around. And the papes sort of inspected him. And and just like before with the guys sort of the sicko patch, these guys are not up to par with what they ought to have. These are kind of like subpar weapons. And it's it's interesting. I don't know if this is meant as sort of a juxtaposition of the like sandalwood grip guns. Mm, oh, I'm sure it's yeah, and, like yeah. setting those is the highest bar. And even the training weapons that you know uh, Keith Burton and Elaine have, mm-hmm. which are like substandard for a gunslinger, yeah, are still almost you know two levels up from yeah. what Sheriff Avery is able to muster. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so that puts it in, like, even more of a weird perspective. And then, uh, basically, there's sort of a little interaction between DePape and um, and Avery, and, and Avery's like, oh, yeah, and Fran Lingle's going to show up, too, and he's got a machine gun. And so this is, what, third mention of Fran Lingle throughout this section? Yeah, yeah, Fran Lingle keeps coming up, which is interesting. Um, it's it's good to know that he's going to be in the mix. So if Roland is successful at some point at getting justice, maybe Fran Lingle will uh, lead the pack into the old thinny. But we'll see. 
I feel like yeah, yeah. they really want us to know his name, though, right? Don't you feel like he, yeah, like, in DJ parlance, underlining that name a lot. <laughs> so we basically get like a little bit of like insight from DePape, and really, he doesn't even care whether um, Sheriff Avery and his gang of of men are successful or not. Another um, reminder that these guys are just in it for the money. Yeah, these guys like are just expendable uh pawns in this game of castles and if they don't work there's other pawns like running into the mix that could hopefully uh take these boys out either way you know like he doesn't really care um which is an extra dark moment and and that's where i was mentioning like cut the fat from mr avery you know from his legs it's like whoa there was one little thing i want to talk about at the beginning of this section which is as De Pape is heading into the sheriff's office. He stops for a second and watches some of the reap deer, reap deer, reap day fair stuff, including this pony ride where there's like a pony, I don't know, pulling some sort of cart. And King breaks the narrative here in a way that we have not seen before, where we we get these little inserts of Roland and Eddie speaking to each other, where Roland Eddie is like joking with him, asking him, you know, oh, is the pony named Charlie? And Roland tells him, no, it would not be named Charlie because there is a word in their language, uh, char, which, or a word in their language, which means death, which is for us a reminder to something that happened in the wastelands where when Roland hears the name of Charlie the Choo Choo, he's disturbed by the fact that Charlie, uh, has char which is the word for death in his high speech and i think what that's doing for us again in djism triple underlining for us this word char because it allows us for maybe people who haven't read the books in a long time to remember like oh right that word means death in high speech and so that makes char you tree which is just kind of a weird thing that they're saying even though they're told we're told they're whispering it it recontextualizes us to remind us that that means the you know death you tree essentially and makes that a much more ominous thing well okay so if it's death by tree is this like a complete throwback to facts the cook where like he was hung maybe and Although so, he was hung from a like a, a gallow. Gallow. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I don't know. We'll find out, but what exactly Charyu tree means, but it means death something. And it's something that the townspeople whisper, which is, you know, like, you know, by Voldemort rules means it must be something pretty bad, right? So <laughs> <laughs> So we pan away and now we're with Susan. Nipple time. And, and uh, uh Susan uh tells him basically like the whole story of like her little experience with Aunt Cord and like what's going on with her father. And then she sort of gets serious about Roland and Roland's like sort of freaking out about the seriousness and keeps repeating like, here's our plan. Here's our plan. This doesn't work. Come get my guns and go find my father. Like, but it'll work and you'll live. You will live. Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and like it's like almost like who are you trying to convince Roland yourself or her mm-hmm, what's going on mm-hmm. and like Susan rolls back into her normal move after like sort of like evaluating Roland and like realizing that like he has the blood of an old man coursing through his veins and that he's not he's not saying these things to her with just sort of um passionate love but more with this like 
forceful adult iciness that's like, I will make you understand that this is the way it is. To the point where Roland like grabs her by the cheeks and like shakes her head back and forth as he explains, like, mm-hmm. go for my guns. If you don't find my guns, you know, yeah, then everything's fine. Go for my guns. And like Susan's like, okay, fine. Um, reaching into your shirt, flicking your nipple. I know. <laughs> R- rolling down, rolling. Yep. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then, like, her classic line of, like, if you love me, love, love me, me Roland. <laughs> and and then we get, like, basic Stephen King description of a sexy time. <sighs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> which, which I'm paraphrasing because, like, I don't want to go into deep yeah. detail. Yeah. Uh, the deep dive, so to speak, mm. of this. See what I did there? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We do get a lot of that, a lot of like amazement at her body. Um, yeah. So you know, we get our final love scene of the book, as far as I know. I think that it, it certainly implies. Well, no, Stephen King even says like, "Yeah, this is the last time they'll ever do this." Right. And like he even like when you're saying amazed a body, like Roland like takes a moment and looks, and like Stephen King steps back and says, "This is a body so good that kings have." murdered thousands for this or something yeah like that, it's you know? very like, ridiculous it's like very dramatic <laughs> yeah. here yeah as uh, you know papa dad uh love story or you know love scene once again i mean it's nothing beats the like weird crotch grabbing on the steps of of the cradle in lud but this is coming close um so yeah, but Stephen King loves to do the foreshadow where he tells us like this is going to be the last time to sort of maximize the tragic impact and uh, adds to that by you know having our our two love interests make all these promises that we know that they cannot keep, but even they have these sort of like instinctual warning bells going off that something is wrong and they're trying to promise those away, and I think. That's something you can definitely identify with as like teenager, right? You know, like we'll just we'll just promise these problems away, but we know that that's that's not the case because of all of Stephen King's uh, foreshadowing. It comes back to that thing we talked about last time about the bomb under the table. Like this scene is kind of excruciating because we know that all these best laid plans that they are laying out right now are going to be undercut by whatever it is that you know the big coffin hunters have planned for them in the morning. And there's this moment here where. Roland is feeling that and he has this second where he's like, you know what? I want to run away. I want to run away from this all. And he almost says it to her, like, let's go. Let's just get away from here. Uh, It's the same feeling that everybody else is expressing. But ultimately, of course, he's Roland. He's, you know, he may be 13 or however old he is, but 14, I think. He may be 14, but Roland is Roland. And so ultimately, duty wins the day and he decides to stay and duty duty (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. okay so uh yeah roland susan last sexy times possibly ever and then like this is juxtaposition with like camera pans away. all right here we go here's the one you wanted to talk about and back down again to this starry night and aunt cord sort of like robotically yeah stopping out into the yard and grabbing one of the outfits that Thorin has sent to the house that is too promiscuous or, or showy for Susan to wear. And then, like, Aunt Cord, like, sort of broods on that fact that, like, 
oh yeah well you're the slut susan i'm gonna put this on a stuffy guy and pull some things off of it and now it's a stuffy girl yeah like i'm gonna fill up the breast pockets and i'm gonna hold this and like there's a moment where she's basically taking this stuffy guy wandering up to a pile of brush and starts the brush on fire and just holds the stuffy gal now Mm -hmm. uh, in her hands to the point where like fires is licking at her her skirt and like pieces of amber are flying by her face and like she could care less if she starts her own house on fire. She's in this sort of zombie state and holding Susan's effigy in her arms. And the reason I kind of under, or I'm, I'm stopping and backing up on that is because she holds Susan for a while mm-hmm. or Susan's effigy for a while before she finally releases her and throws the girl into the fire. Yeah. And that moment where aunt cord is holding her almost seems like a a bit of self-reflection plus like a piling up of the emotional um stand that she's had with this girl like all the things that she actually did care about is also being put into this interesting into this like um effigy of susan because stephen king describes her as basically going like blank-eyed for a moment Mm -hmm. and just holding this and so it's not like she's just throwing away the parts she doesn't like. It's like, she's almost cleansing herself of everything, Susan, and then tossing her into the fire and like delighting at the fact that this is burning away from her life. Mm-hmm. And that moment there is, is so dramatic and like, Aunt Cord's been fake dramatic before uh-huh. where it's like, Oh, you hurt my feelings. Uh-huh. Oh, how dare you? And like been like crazy dramatic, but this is the first time where you almost feel like she is emotionally dramatic. I mean, I it, think she's and not and mad. sort of emotionally true at the same time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The description of her burning and watching this thing burn to, down to ashes is terrifying. Mm-hmm. You know, there is a madness of the watch the world variety that's happening with her. There's this moment where she thinks of Jonas and Coral and moans audibly. Like, you know, you can hear her like mewling essentially because it's it's all of these things kind of coming together to just break this woman. The guilt about her brother, the jealousy she has for Susan, her own character flaws of greed and bitterness. And then like it was just too much with the the Jonas thing was like maybe her last hope that she, maybe she was gonna finally find love and that got dashed. And it just, it's just, this woman is broken, but instead of doing self-reflection, she's channeling all of this disappointment, all of this anger, all this guilt into a hatred of Susan. When she's burning it, she's talking about the red hands and how guilty she is. She has chosen to to do zero self-reflection. And so I'm going to read you the description of it just because I think it's really creepy. Cordelia stood and watched, fists clench and unclenching, heedless of the sparks that lit on her skin, heedless of the blazing leaves that swirled toward the house. Had the house caught on fire, she likely would have ignored that as well. She watched until the stuffy dressed in her niece's clothes was nothing but ashes lying on top of more ashes. Then, as slowly as a robot with rust in its work, she walked back to the house, lay down on the sofa, and slept like the dead. The thing that really stood out to me here was the mention of uh, of a robot with rust in its works. And I thought, you know, what do robots have? A 
total lack of empathy. Yeah, it's not good. <laughs> well, so you you took a little bit different from what I took from it. Yeah. Like, I almost felt like she put all of her emotions into the stuffy, and then when she burned it, that's what like changed her from a person to a robot. Hmm. But but maybe I'm wrong. Like I don't know. I don't know. I, don't know. It, I mean, it's just I think, my interpretation. It doesn't mean it's the right one. It's just mine. Well, no, and with metaphors, like, you can be pretty wibbly-wobbly about what... That is very true. That is very, very true. Regardless, like, Aunt Cord is a monster. Yeah. I think it's interesting that she picked the red writing shirt. We know that Thorin had given Susan several, but she took the red one, which is the one that they fought about when Susan wanted to wear her father's shirt. He was like, she was trying to talk her into changing into this other writing shirt, and she wouldn't do it. So I think that there's a parallel there. At least that's my interpretation. All right. Hmm. So we uh, pick can- camera pans again from this like lady sleeping on a couch to a bar scene where we hear screaming at the top of the lungs. Uh-huh. And like we cut to Stanley, the bartender, and, and he sort of like has this like dream of a couple of the um, what do they call them? Uh, what's the he has a fancy term or the, the he like basically is like our prostitutes upstairs like to call themselves oh, it's like, like cotton um, it's like cotton fairies or something like I think that it is cotton fairies yeah and like he uses that term and like it's kind of like whatever and and that he thinks about one particular uh prostitute that he <laughs> hopes is the one screaming and is dead oh, because he'd love to shuffle her Petty out of the town trotter. yeah and poor penny like nope and so he reaches under the bar to grab he has two clubs one is the like good night club the calmer and the killer and one is the goodbye club yeah <laughs> <laughs> and so like one is just like a big stick to whack someone over the head so that they'll be out and cold for a while and the other one it has like nails sticking out of it for murderers on the mind and so he grabs that one and like doesn't really want to, but decides he he has to go out to check on this curdling scream. And he gets out there, and no one's hurt, but it's one of the prostitutes standing out, like, looking at the moon. And the moon is red, and, like, Stephen King describes it as, like, winking at at them uh, with, like, big eyes. And then this, like, mist of almost blood over the town and flowing through the air which is not a good sign at all and sort of (laughs) i so when you read that you think like maybe it's metaphorical and that mist is sort of like the ashes and burning of something like flying through the air so i sort of wanted to pin that on like some kind of bonfire thing that they got going on but he doesn't mince words when he says like, it looks like blood flying through the air. So I'm not 100% sure what this blood mist is or is not. And it's regardless, it's like, it's super ominous. Yeah, for sure. So we talked about how Stephen King has this literary device where he's starting chapters with these little vignettes that, that about the town. The other one he really enjoys is these closing out of chapters with references to the moon. And he's done this several times throughout the course of the book. Uh, and then the moon will tell us a little bit about the moon, what's, you know, foreshadowing of what's going to happen next. And this is definitely the most disturbing of them all. I thought the 
Demon Moon smiling and winking and knowing a secret last time was was as creepy as it gets. No, 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 ma'am. Now we have... Yeah, exactly. So here's the description. Above them, Demon Moon grinned and winked one eye through what appeared to be a shifting scrim of blood. (sighs) So, you know, there's two things here. First of all, as we open with the narrator telling us that the, you know, bloodshed would be coming to this place and it would be the beginning of the end. So this, this is kind of a reference to that, or at least it's a a parallel or a, a bookend to that. But also we know that we're on the eve of this attack where the big coffin hunters have laid a trap for Roland and and this gang that they don't see coming. And uh, yeah, I don't feel like that is a good sign for what we have. There's going to be some bloodshed in Hambry tomorrow, I think is a fair bet. I don't know how that's going to go. (laughs) I'm probably horribly. Hopefully uh... it's just, you know, it goes great. Fran Lingle gets it. Cord gets it. Rhea gets it. But I have a feeling not going to be that simple. <laughs> I mean, Rhea's almost already got it, right? All right. All right. So, overall, what are your thoughts on this chapter, DJ? I mean, this has a lot of ups and downs uh-huh. and like it feels like every character is swinging with their maximum <laughs> swing now. Yeah. So, we're we're getting a lot of the last throws of emotional content from these folks. Yeah. And it's all out. Um this is more of a Rachel chapter than a DJ chapter, okay. but it's still pretty good. And I did mention that I may have uh, possibly shed a tear. <laughs> so like, it's got enough that it makes you go like, Whoa. Yeah. yeah so hmm. yeah. 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 This is a gr- what about This you? one's a grim one for sure. I feel like this one, we've had a lot of tension building, but this is the first time where I really felt a, a, a real sense of dread. You know, I could feel the final pieces slotting into place and every indication is it's gonna be real bad. <laughs> like every single omen, every single, you know, even the sweet moments feel bittersweet. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I liked it. I think it was beautifully written in parts. I mean, I always like Stephen King's writing, but I think he, this was a chapter where you could feel him, you know, there, as a writer, there are times where you struggle to get every word on the page. And then there's moments where you get these sort of winds, right? Where you just, you know, just flows out of you. And I felt a lot, like a lot of this chapter was the latter. Um, he waxed very poetic. There was lots of omens and ominous signs and foreboding. And uh, uh, yeah, I feel, I feel nervous, but I'm still excited about the book and uh, we'll see where it goes. <laughs> All right. Plan for next chapter. Uh, who's ready to get your heart broken? We're going to be covering Wizard and Glass, Part 3, Come Reap, Chapter 7, Taking the Ball. Which is an interesting, like, immediately, I mean, you could be like, oh, they're going to go take Rhea's thing. Um, her, you know, Wizard's Glass. But I also, it made me think of, like, when people are pouting. They're like, I'm taking my ball and going home. So. Is, oh, is that like, I guess I'm not familiar with that. Have you never heard that? No? Is that like a sports thing? Like, I brought the one football to the game and like, yeah. I'm mad at you now and I'm taking yeah, the football. Yeah, that's exactly home. what that means. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Connections to the Stephen King universe. None that I saw. I got very excited when he named the, the bats underneath the thing because I thought it was a connection to another one, but it was not. So if I missed any, please let me know. And that brings us to listener feedback and our favorite 
Facebook group question. Okay, so those are actually linked this time. Uh, I don't know if you saw this in the Facebook group yet, but we got a letter from one of our listeners named Christopher who had a question about our book order, like what our plans are for the future. So Christopher says, just finished up another great podcast. Oh, that's nice. And if I'm not mistaken, you said you may read The Wind Through the Keyhole at the very end of the Dark Terror series as a palate cleanser. Any chance you guys would reconsider and read it where it takes place in the timeline between books four and five? Perhaps you addressed this on the podcast already and I missed it, but I don't think so. I understand that Wind Through the Keyhole does not advance the story at all, and uh, if this is why you're choosing to leave it out, that makes sense. But it's such a fantastic read, a story within a story within a story, and beautifully written. Either way, I'll continue to be joining you on your road to the tower, but I thought I would toss this idea out to see what you thought. Keep up the great work. Your discussions always make me realize, discover something I hadn't thought of before, which is very nice of you to say, Christopher. So, first of all, thanks, Christopher. Yeah. And second of all, Rachel, are we doing this? Well, I mean, that's the thing. I don't, my, in, okay, so my instinct was to save it for the end because, well, for one, that's how it was when I read it because, it, you know, it came out years after Dark Tower. So I had already read the full series and I read it. And my experience was that it was really great to return to these characters that I loved. And, you know, this book has some sad, the series has some sad stuff. So it was also kind of like this really bittersweet experience. And yeah, so that's what I was thinking we would do. My plan was for us to go from this into the Little Sisters of Aloria, which is the novella that takes place after, between here and the Gunslinger. And then okay. from there, go directly into Wolves of the Kala. Kind of just sort of tacking Sisters of Allura onto the end of this. But ultimately, and I think you would agree with this, we want to make this the most enjoyable experience for our listeners. We're going to cover all these books regardless. The order really kind of depends on what people want, right? What do you think, TJ? Uh, so maybe we uh, put a vote up on this because it seems like something that like we can do either way. And it won't hurt us, but it may hurt you guys. So what do you think about possibly a survey of some kind, Rachel? Well, I did put one up on the Facebook group. Um, oh, and so proactive. Yeah. Uh, head, of, head of the game. <laughs> yeah, that's why I was saying these two things linked together. Because I wanted to know what everybody else thought. So um, let me pull up what the current view is. So I asked the audience, or I asked the Facebook group what they wanted and let's see here jeremy thinks when did the keyhole at the end david agrees because it's like visiting old friends sheldon says to save the wind uh when did the key went through the keyhole to the end garrett says original plan gg agrees with our lineup tim agrees with our lineup craig disagrees he thinks <laughs> Oh, Craig. I, I know, I know. But the point is, so now currently the vote is two, two, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. But this is not the final count. This is just the Facebook group, which, by the way, if you're not in the Facebook group, you should join the Facebook group. It's pretty fun. But I want to know from all the listeners, whether you are a Facebook member or not, maybe you have decided Facebook is the evil empire and you have deleted your Facebook account. And I applaud you and I wish I had your personal conviction uh, or as i'm told more recently it's for old people i mean well that's a reason for me to stay <laughs> but anyway the point is i want to hear from you guys because like i i actually responded to christopher already and told them i i will do this on whatever you guys 
order you guys want to do. I my grand plan was based solely on my personal experience, but I am not married to it. So email us at zombiegirls.com. Let me know what you guys want, and DJ and I will happily adapt to whatever democracy decides. Sound good, DJ? I mean, uh, is it a democracy or is it a theopoly? Uh, yeah, go for it. Vote, vote, <laughs> vote early, vote often. <laughs> right now, it's looking like it's going to stay with this order, but I am very, very open to change that. Okay, so um, that is it for our listener feedback this time. But if you have thoughts on that or anything else, like I said, Drop me a line over email or join our Facebook group. News. Let's do this. Really quick. Got this. There's one news story I want to cover on the podcast this time. I know we typically stick to Dark Tower news only. Otherwise, I would have news every time because like every other week, there's a new adaptation of Stephen King's work coming out. Mm-hmm. But this one, I think, is Dark Tower adjacent enough. Plus, we're fans of this. And so I don't know if you've heard this, but... The Talisman adaptation is finally happening. Amazon? No. Close. HBO? Close. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, like every streaming service named in order until I get a score? (laughs) Netflix. Okay. So originally, it was supposed to be adapted by the same person that did The Stand. And I was very into it at the time just because I'm like, anything The Talisman, I want it. I feel less inclined that way so i'm kind of glad now that it actually has moved on it is now going to be a mini series on netflix it is being produced by steven spielberg along with the duffer brothers who created the stranger things series okay and that sounds like a good prospects sort of thing right Right? like my gut was "Mm, this works because for one thing They've they've got an in with Netflix. They've made one of the most successful shows on the series or on the on the the service. So probably Netflix is going to throw some money at this. So that's good. Definitely. It's going to be a mini series because you need that for this this project, right? Because that's another one of his tomes. It's like a very long story. I think this will lend itself very well to a mini series because the book itself is extremely episodic, and the Duffer Brothers know how to get good performances out of kids. Because obviously the kids are really great in Steven, in uh, Stranger Things. So I personally, very excited about this news. What do you think? I mean, I never even taken a look at the talisman until you pointed it to me mm-hmm. and said, go take a look at that. And I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And that is something that seems like because it has a strong story structure of beginning, middle and end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, like, it doesn't get off into a bunch of weird tangents that it would be easy to adapt to a, you know, streaming or television series or, you know, maybe a a mini series or whatever. And I think you would be hard pressed to screw it up. Right. Question mark. Yeah. Like, it seems like an easy one to not mess up. Right. There's a limited number of characters. So you could have a lot of character building. Yeah, you just, but you gotta get Wolf right though. That's all I'm gonna say. You gotta get Wolf right or GTA. I guess you could screw it up with like CG Wolf. Yeah, like really bad CG Wolf. Yeah. Although mm. I mean, Stranger Things looks great, and there's a lot of CGI in that. So fingers crossed. 
I've, I've yeah. gotten my hopes up a little too much too many times. So, like, I'm trying to keep my expectations somewhat low. But, you know, I just think this is going to be such a good one. And I feel like a lot of people, even people who love Stephen King, have not read The Talisman because it's so different than his other stuff. So... Hopefully, yeah, and that's one like I wouldn't even bothered with until you were like, "Hey, check this out." I had a feeling you would like it because there's a lot of like DJ things in it, a lot of action, um, a lot of really great characters, um, fantasy, really good world building, and it's Dark Tower adjacent. Like I know they're called the territories, but it's clearly just a you know meant to be another level in the tower, right? So. Yeah, definitely. And I know the uh, the second book, Black House, directly links to Dark Tower stuff because it has like Crimson King connections. Oh, I need to go check out the second book. It's called the Black the House. The Black House, yeah. And it's Jack okay. Sawyer when he's uh, it's kind of like Doctor Sleep in that it like picks up with a character after he like when he's grown and uh, has is sort of dealing with some of the trauma. Mmm, rubbing hands. <laughs> so yeah, so that's the news that I wanted to cover. I figure it's Dark Tower close enough that we would want to talk about it on the show. People in the audience, if you're excited about this, drop us a line. Let us know what you think. Um, you could let us know who you think should play Wolf and Jack. I'd like to know. I'd like to know. All right. That just leaves us with our thoughts on the seventh episode of the stand we're almost through it my friend we're almost through it <laughs> can you stand this i don't know i don't know if i can stand much more <laughs> but okay so the episode picks up following the explosion harold and nadine leave boulder on motorcycles harold who thinks he's finally done what he needs to do he's gonna go get himself a hot ass broad in new vegas loses control on his bike flies off gets killed or he gets severely injured and nadine leaves him to die saying gets impaled and nadine like was leading to that impalement by like Mm -hmm. sort of distracting him and then seeing the curve and slowing down yep as nadine is one cold piece of work man so harold writes his final thoughts in his journal over the next few days before shooting himself in the mouth all right, what'd you think of Harold's demise? I mean, it's in the book, but I don't know. What did you think? Um, so I I don't know if it's just because I still have the old um miniseries in my head, uh-huh. but it's like he didn't seem so in the old miniseries. Like you get this feeling that like immediately as soon as they're leaving, um he regrets his decisions Mm, right right in this one and like even in the book a little bit like he's kind of got a little bit of internal turmoil over it yeah but in this it's like fuck you and then like even when he like hits it it's like he takes some pop shots at nadine and is like i still don't fucking care fuck you yeah and then like we cut away and we come back to crows eating him and like his face gone and like this like really long-winded note about like what he used to do as a child and like how he's excluded from games and like now you need to feel about me as a character and like i'm sorry and like the juxtaposition of that was sort of weird yeah because like you never got him on camera being like i feel bad about this no it was just like i'm still a shitbag <laughs> yeah i mean it's kind of this uh, this decision to lean into the incel thing i think makes it more relevant 
the character. Mm-hmm. Like it modernizes him in a way that is um, sadly very recognizable. But at the same time, what it means is you don't get a redemptive arc, which is something that you do exactly. get in the book. And like you said, in the original miniseries, and, and it's just so strange. The way that the, again, we talk about, we joked about him being the main character of the movie or the series. So when he just abruptly dies, it was funny. I was watching it with my partner and he was like, is this a dream sequence? <laughs> Oh, you just killed the like no, most important the main character? character just died. <laughs> he like could not believe what he was saying with his eyes. I mean, here's the thing though: is we don't have a lot of like emotional catharsis around what happens with Harold because they do throw away a lot of that regret that he experiences in the other versions. But I do think his performance continues to be really great when he's on that branch and bloody, and his eyes are crazy. Owen Teague is really great and compelling in this it's just that he's not the character and doesn't get the arc um that he does in the book and it's something that something about this i I was going to save this thought for the end but i might as well just say it now is that i okay this this one was directed by uh, vincenzo natale who is a really are there different directors for each one of these stand episodes uh, i mean there are a handful of directors i think some of them direct multiple episodes it's kind of like pretty standard right that there's i don't know yeah. i i guess i always assumed it was like continuity is best so you have the same guy no no usually sort of you'll have multiple vision. you'll have multiple directors doing these kinds of things i mean the original one was one guy um it was all mick garris who we saw in <laughs> with people uh, as patrons know we watched sleepwalkers and he had a little he was the director of that film as well um, but <laughs> <laughs> that fever dream <laughs> yes but I feel like throughout this episode, there are things that this episode did really well. And I could feel the potential for the show in a way that I haven't in a long time. The problem is there is, because it's sort of flubbed in other ways, the stuff didn't have the emotional resonance it should have. Like when we get to the scene between Stu and Fran saying goodbye to each other, those performances are very good. It is a, a, if if we actually cared about those characters, that would have been a very bittersweet goodbye, a very heart-wrenching mm-hmm. goodbye, because the performances are very good. We've just never had any time to invest in that relationship or see their chemistry in any way. So it, it feels more like a, a monologue, or like a, not a monologue, because there's two of them, like a dialogue scene that's just done really, really well. And it's a <laughs> it's an ongoing problem with this episode where I think there's really strong stuff that is undercut by the fact that we just have not invested in the characters. OK, well, even um, and so this is a little bit ahead, but like when they're talking about the dude dying in the explosion, uh-huh. like it's almost secondhand, like you didn't get to know him enough. Right. And then when they're like, oh, he's dead. Oh, no. Right. You're like, yeah, where's your telephone? Because uh, you need to dial dial some numbers so you can phone this one in (laughs) right we should be gutted about nick and it's more just kind of like oh yeah and even like Whoopi is like just like i thought he was the one who's gonna lead you why i guess not why did you think that though you never gave us any reason i know right it's just like he's just the guy i talk to a lot because we're buds you know yeah and like Stu being the person to take that place feels just like oh that feels like standard formula like oh we've got the like heroic white yep. dude you know what i mean as opposed yeah, to yeah and then even when she's the... like and one of you are going to die like it wasn't like one of you are going to die yeah. it's like 
what are you gonna die (laughs) what's behind door number seven like you should feel dread because you're like care about these characters and you're like no i don't want one of them to die like think about how we feel about genie or how we feel about susan like we know one we know like one or both of them is gonna die and i feel genuinely like dread and sadness about that when when she delivers that line which really is impactful in the book you're just kind of like okay well that's probably gonna happen okay cool which is a bummer (laughs) because if we cared about them i think that scene would have actually been pretty good but whatever okay i'm repeating myself anyways sorry sorry. no i didn't mean to like get you off course it's fine it's fine all right so i realized that i actually got ahead of myself because i got all in my feelings about everything that happened with harold and nadine so i want to go back to a scene that actually happened before all of this which is our one trash can man scene of the episode where we see him i guess find the nuke and then i don't know dry hump it so well no he like cuts it out of a like so he finds a a underground missile silo basically and like climbs down into it and i'm from the midwest where i used to drive by these all the time really yeah yeah so uh fun aside is that like you know what state of of alertness the united states is in for uh, military preparation when the bomb bay doors are open and the nukes have like the tips sticking out of the ground really that is yeah yeah so you're scary you're like you're driving around in nebraska and like normally those bays are closed and it's just like a weird fenced in empty place with like a, a light on a pole and then one day you drive by it and the bay doors are like cracked and the tip of the of the missile is like sticking out of the bay Thanks, with like I a little hate it <laughs> and you're like what's going on and like you uh, we interface a lot with like the the um uh military uh comms folks and they're like oh yeah it's, it's a higher state of alertness and you're like oh sure, sure, oh my sure. god that's really scary i hate it <laughs> yeah and so these are all over the midwest and uh, i'm not military so like if you want to check me on that one like go for it i i may be completely off base and that guy might have just been pulling my leg but it is a thing that we actually saw with the bay doors opening um but so he basically climbs down in and with nukes uh their payload is stored um up towards the nozzle and the rest is all projectile stuff mm-hmm. uh to get it to the location so they are a bit accurate in like him like cutting that out uh-huh. and then like pulling it up the Geiger counter thing and like the bouncing on the road and the activating the Geiger counter seems a little, um, or, you know, uh, for movie or television show esque, uh-huh. uh-huh. uh, because if it's encapsulated in a sealed environment, if you bump it around, it doesn't change the amount of sealant around it. Yeah. And therefore like it shouldn't be going up and down, but Hey, whatever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's still like our one bit where like you get a crotch shot of the trash can man yeah. driving like a scooter around with the bomb strapped to the back yeah. so i guess it's okay still not as cool as the dude from honey i shrunk the kids uh but yeah fine yeah that's right he wasn't honey i shrunk the kids I am i know, wrong you're totally right he's the weird neighbor i just haven't thought yeah. about it in a really long time that's hilarious i always just asso- associate him with with like um max hedrum max hedrum but also the the one where it's the weird town where everybody's a genius we've talked about it before 
Eureka. Oh, Eureka? Yeah, those are the things I think about. And so, the and obviously, oh. Trash Can Man. So, he's uh, super prolific. He's yeah. been in tons of stuff. I mean, like, so if I... there's like a sci fi show that's shot in Canada, like, he'll show up eventually, <laughs> uh, which I've, I'm always delighted every time he shows up. But yeah, I mean, so I do not like this interpretation of Trash Can Man. I do not like that he came in so late. I do not like that we don't have any background information on him, especially considering the role that he plays in the finale. Like, it's crazy to me that we're introducing him so late. But I there is one positive thing I have to say about Trash Can Man, and that is okay. the sounds that he is making are so creepy. They're so like it like gave me like literal actual goosebumps. I mean, I don't like the performance and I don't like it when we see his face, but when you just hear him like and it, it, like making those like squeals of delight over the bomb echoing through the whatever the thing is that you said the silo, it is genuinely creepy. I feel like um, you've said I don't like this so many times that we need I don't like this Sam I am I don't like greetings and ham. <laughs> drink <laughs> every time i say i don't like this drink and then die of alcohol poisoning um yeah okay so that's my positive thing for trash can man um okay so after it's that a lot of jazz about his outfit uh, it's like yeah you know, what are you doing with you don't that? want to see and his like, tidy brownies well no like that part's fine like but what's going on like he's a uh, explosive expert but like he's not really maintaining the explosive properly like they even pointed out like he's just driving around like crazy man like it's hitting the top of the the rads chart and like he's just like whatevs you know yeah like, i mean he doesn't look like doesn't, someone with like a lot of um risk he doesn't seem like a risk averse person <laughs> <laughs> okay so back to nadine she ditches old uh Harold in the in the I guess desert? Yeah, it's desert. And makes her merry way towards uh New Vegas. And while she's on the way there, she sees rose petals waiting for her. And the two and uh, there out in the distance is Randall Flagg, ready for some sweet desert loving. So she finally gives herself to him sexually, and uh during which Flagg reveals his true form. Uh and now, you are a big fan of the original. I want to know what you think of this new version of Randall Flagg when he transforms into his demon self. Like, I thought the original miniseries was silly, yeah. but this is, like, next level silly. It's, like, a bad mock-up of the guy from The Mummy I was gonna say, in mummy form, like, that? sexing on a girl and, like, even to the point where he's got, got mummy bits on his legs and like a little, oh, ooh, oh. <laughs> yeah, this was a moment I was kind of really looking forward to because, yes, is the original one a little goofy? Sure. But I was like, okay, well, what is the modern version of that? And it was. It's not this. Yeah, I don't know what. This is a choice I do not understand. <laughs> I don't get like, it. Like, what, what you should have gone with in this scene is like regular body cut away cut forward she looks up and like his face is some demon-esque craziness yeah i mean like i wanted and... like some sort of like rosemary's baby type of thing remember that but not this this is like some i don't know it looks like it reminds me of like early 2000s when america was trying to do j-horror yeah maybe and cheese and rice man put a blanket down 
<laughs> your butt's on the rocks. That hurts. It's not a comfortable thing for your butt to be on. Sadly, this is actually like a much gentler, kinder version of than what happens in the book. Stuff happens. So the stand is one I want to go back yeah. and read, but I don't know if I have like three weeks worth of my life. To, well, <laughs> to like, I mean, we could cut always aside. do it after wind after the keyhole or went through the keyhole. <laughs> I mean, we could, you know, we don't know. We don't know what we're going to do after this. So. But. The cast of Costand. <laughs> I guess that's true. Would we have to change the name of the podcast? I don't know. I don't know. Every every like three or four that's years. Prob- that, yeah, that's name. a problem for way in the future. <laughs> uh, All right. Anyway, so like. basically this is disappointing. Okay, sorry. All right. Well, Correct. Um, I agree 100% with you. I've, I've, I am not uh, super excited about what they did with this. Um, uh, it's silly um and, and then bouncing around like this happens incongruent with those guys also being sent out by mother abigail yeah. to like wander down the trail yeah yep yeah, yeah. and like we have that scene with mother abigail that's like sort of weak sauce mm-hmm. or like i guess one you is dead and i knew that and they're like shock <gasps> and you're like are you guys shocked come on <laughs> right right like what and then like you have the whole group be like okay and then like mother abigail specifically not you you got a baby in you you stay here yeah i mean i know that supposedly there is a different ending for franny coming um because stephen king has always regretted not having franny go and you know finish out her story so I don't know what that means. I don't know what that's going to look like, but hopefully, hopefully it's because, uh, yeah, I think it's kind of shitty that Brandy doesn't get to go. But whatever. OK, so we talked about Mother Abigail. All right. So the after saying their goodbyes and a scene that I've already talked about, they head out. They find Harold's remains, which we already talked about, and they reach a point uh, as they get closer into Randall Flagg's country where there is a giant split in the road and they have to climb down and climb out. And while trying to climb out, Stu falls and breaks his leg. One has fallen. And eventually, you know, they try to, you know, they're like, oh, we'll take you with us, blah, blah, blah. But he basically tells them like, no, you have to go. This is Mother Abigail's prediction. You got to go without me. So they leave. Uh, Kojak the dog stays because dogs are better than people. Stays with Stu. (laughs) And Lloyd pulls up in a limo and takes the others to Flag, who has Nadine greet them in the casino. In her mind, she is beautiful. She's glamorous. Her hair is turned white, but it's very like pinup girl. But in reality, she is a husk of her former self and heavily pregnant. End of episode. What do you think about that? And what do you think about the episode overall? I mean... I was telling you before the show, I tried to watch this three times and fell asleep two of them. So, um, this is not a very compelling episode, and I felt a little bad about what they've done with their characters. Um, maybe I'm being too mean. Maybe I'm not being too mean, but geez, come on, guys! <laughs> like, like I, I feel like. Uh, we skipped the get to know you part of the um of the like speed dating <laughs> and like went from uh hello my name is to straight to like a- and done <laughs> with like all of these characters mm-hmm. and so you're just not getting the depth that you need and i i think i stand by my previous claims that like 
this could really use two or three more episodes just squeezed in yeah to develop the characters yeah. because i want to know them yeah but when you don't get to know them then like basically there's no consequences for them having anything happen to them yeah do you even care when Stu breaks his leg no you just really think like well i guess Stu's not the one who dies <laughs> oh got you there like, <laughs> right. thanks great congratulations author yeah uh i don't know uh i agree with you and it's evidenced by that scene where they're all walking together and kind of like joking about like who knows where the who where to get the clean water like you can see that the casting is good the actors are good they just haven't gotten to show that side of themselves. I also feel like every scene with Glenn is elevated because even though Greg Kinnear got like no time to develop his character, he's so instantly likable as Glenn that you kind of, you you don't actually need as much development with him. He's the only person that has managed to survive the shortcut and still come away with like actually having a likable and fully fledged out character. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm just mad at the, they have all this money. Like, come on. Give me, like, and plus, that's more views, right? Like, give me, like, two more episodes, three more episodes. Right? Uh, and, I don't know. I mean, I mean, especially if you could just squeeze them out with just, like, some character development somehow. Well, you could even have, like, okay, so um, one of the classics of miniseries is you have, like, the ramp up, the pause of boring introductions, and then the ramp up again, and then the finale. Mm-hmm. And with this, they basically peeled out the boring introductions. But with the stand, what you really need is introductions. And those are the least amount of, I don't know, effects and craziness. It's just people talking and introducing themselves and like the backstory and a little deeper dive into who these folks are. Mm-hmm. And I, I roll back to the mechanic and, and the first group of people basically that are sent to, to Vegas. Like you have almost zero feels for them when they start getting killed because you don't even meet the judge really. Mm-hmm. And the other gal, like she's there for a split second. You have that one scene uh, by the tanker and then like done nothing else. And then, like, now she's like, yeah, you son of a bitch, Rick, I'm in. You know, like, it's like a bad Rick and Morty joke. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm just ranting. No, no, no. I think I think your rant is valid because I, I'm, I'm like I said, I want to come back to what I said earlier. I think the individual scenes in this show the potential of what it could have been because mm-hmm. all the pieces are there except for the fact that we don't care about the characters. And I'm sorry about the Rick and Morty reference, but uh, I there's just always time long... for a Rick and Morty me- reference. Okay, <laughs> I went through a long Reddit thread where it was just like "son of a bitch, I'm in," and it like went through a bunch of pictures <laughs> Why is that like, over so and over funny? and over again. It is I don't know. <laughs> that I don't whole know montage that makes so of them doing it on the show. You yeah, son of a bitch, like... I'm in. And then Rick immediately Rick betrays changes. them all. <laughs> you son of a bitch, I'm in. And like, it's just like all these random, like, and it's so Oceans 11, Oceans 12, Oceans. I don't even know, know how many there are. It's like, just, it's just so good because it's like a random character introduced for a moment, like two lines of dialogue, son of a bitch, I'm in. 
we're almost at the end. We decided because there's just two episodes left, we are going to do episodes eight and nine together on the next episode and finish up the stand. Why are everybody else is already finished with this? Why are we dragging this out? Let's just make this happen. So yeah, for those of you who are watching along with us, we are going to finish the series on the next episode. All right. So that is it for us. Unless you are a patron uh, and you want to stick around, we're going to just kind of talk about all of the many, many adaptations uh, that are coming out of Stephen King's works. I have a complete list and I'm going to run through them and briefly get DJ's thoughts on each of these adaptations, which ones he's looking forward to, which ones he's not, which one he has no idea what the source material oh, is. Oh no, that's going to be most of them. I feel I feel guilty like this is like the worst extra content we're going to deliver because it'll just be me being like, I don't know what that is. I Do mean, you know what that yeah. is? We'll, we'll just wing it. Maybe we'll talk about something completely different. You never know what's going to happen behind the paywall. I tease it, but really it kind of just goes its own way every time. So we'll see where we <laughs> So for those of you at home, if you would like to hear that, join our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash zombie girls, where you can hear the extended episode along with bonus episodes and all kinds of crazy content that will be coming your way. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at cast of call at zombiegirls.com, or you can hit us up over on the Facebook group, which you should join anyway. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for something to watch tonight, head over to the Zombie Girls website and check out our video and streaming calendar where you can see all the horror and horror adjacent things that are coming to you streaming services and video on demand services of which there are a billion T uh, that are available now and coming soon. All right, DJ with all of those myriad plugs out of the way, where can they find you on the internet? Uh, swing over to deadlantern.com and you can check out uh, the dead lantern podcast, which is still going strong as we review <laughs> Beatles albums. Oh my gosh. Uh, still? Uh, yeah. Uh, Beatles are apparently prolific. Uh, they have a lot of stuff. And and that's pretty much it. Um, I am dabbling on Etsy, but I ran out of wood and it's gotten really expensive oh, uh, no. because of shortages of fires. And so there may not be a lot of Etsy products coming out in the near term. Well, that's um, good. So it means you'll other... go back and finish up your Dark Tower one. <laughs> I know, right? And uh, I actually, like, I have um, a, a project I, I'm working on for Rachel yeah. just, like, sitting in the corner just yeah. shaming me oh, every day no. as I go into my, my shop. I'm like, you finish it. I haven't finished this yet, and I still talk to Rachel weekly, okay. and I have not done her thing. Don't, don't mm. worry. It's fine. When you finish it, you finish it. You're doing me a favor. I'm not going to, like, give you a hard time about it. We're still... I know, but it's, like, it's on the cusp. Like, there's, it like, two things like that were left happening. It did seem like you were really happen. close to being done. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was basically, like, one step away from being done, and then I started on my desk, and, like, yours is in the corner, yeah. like, staring I at me. I do the being, same like, What's thing up? with my projects, too. I have, like, four things going right now, too, so I understand. I understand. So, okay, cool. So that's where they can find you. If you want more of me, you can find me on The Zombie Girls, where we review horror films from a, from a feminist perspective. You can find me on The Stream Queens, where we review horror films that you can stream on the internet. Very exciting. Our next episode, we're having a, a very first Patreon guest, which, by the way, is one of the perks that you can get if you uh, sign up. I can't remember which tier it's at, or you get to be a guest on the show of your choice. So he's going to come on, and we're going to watch the movie Cooties. And you can find me on More Deadly, where we review horror films that are directed only by women-identified directors. And this has been a really great month for that. We have some really fun interviews with both, uh, or we have some reviews of some movies coming out and interviews with the directors, which has been very fun and exciting. And finally, 
Uh, you can, oh, well, two more things. One, you can find us on our Twitch channel. Check us out, Zombie Girls Twitch channel. We have been streaming some board games, if that's your jam. Mostly it's just us, like, getting drunk and bullshitting while we do board trivia. <laughs> but there'll be some other things, which ties into this next thing I'm going to announce, which is I am partnering with the guys at Here's Johnny, myself, and my co-host of uh, the Stream Queens Mars are doing a mini series all about the entire Saw series. I've never seen them because I am a wimp, but I am finally going to go there. We're going to watch those. We're also going to be playing the Saw game, which will be streaming on Twitch. Lots of ways to get these dulcet tones in your ears if that is your jam. Uh, all right. That is it. DJ, take us out. Uh, like a woken king. <laughs> In Egypt, who has come oh, out of no. sarcophagus <laughs> to lay on the ground with his beautiful woman <laughs> and fill her belly with his seed. We would like to wish you a good night and hope that your pregnant belly is filled with beer instead of seed. So oh, good night, <laughs> good dreams. And remember, if someone's mouth opens wider than it should, they are probably from ancient Egypt. <laughs> I didn't know where this was going, and I was like, oh my god, it's Randall Flagg. <laughs> <laughs> All right, behind the paywall, let me pull this I got, up. You gotta make it weird every time. Well, yeah, of course. I would be disappointed if you didn't. Um, I like I like to at least once every episode go like, no! <laughs> so I know you're doing a good job. I was making eye contact with him and like then imagining the like uh, uh, the, the actual mummy series where his like mouth goes like way open. <laughs> yes, yes, I can totally and see like, that. Ooh. Thanks everybody for listening and to my co-host DJ for making me laugh and for indulging all of my tinfoil hat conspiracies. Production on this episode was done by yours truly. Our theme song for the show was created by DJ. Bye.